Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter him in a diverse community and participate with him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Bonhoeffer says that the temple is the place where God dwells and is graciously present among human beings. It is at the same time the place where the church community is accepted by God. Both of these aspects have been fulfilled only in the incarnate Jesus Christ. Here is the place where God is truly and bodily present. It is also here that humanity is truly and bodily present, for Christ has accepted humanity in his own body. The body of Christ is thus the place of acceptance, the place of reconciliation, and of peace between God and human beings. In the body of Christ, God finds us, and in that same body of Christ, we find ourselves being accepted by God. Christ's body is the spiritual temple built from living stones. Christ is the sole foundation and cornerstone of this temple. At the same time, he himself is the temple in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, filling and sanctifying the hearts of the believers. The temple of God is the holy church community in Jesus Christ. The body of Christ is the living temple of God and of the new humanity. Welcome back to the Awaken podcast. Dallas and I are here in the empty sanctuary on a warm Tuesday afternoon, recording episode two on the book of Ephesians. Uh, we are excited. There's a lot here. I wish we could spend like four episodes just on chapter two. I think some of my favorite uh, teachings are here in this text. Uh, so before we dive in, um, Dallas is going to read to us from Ephesians chapter two in the NRSV. Awesome. Yeah. Ephesians chapter two, verse one, again in the NRSV, Paul begins, you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. So then, remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision, by those who were called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh he has made us both group, he has made both groups into one, and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you, are also, you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I, there's so much here. One of my favorite things that I, I think if I were listening to this podcast and I was doing like a Bible study or was going to go read it after, I would pay really close attention to the pronouns Paul uses, how he says you, and it's always plural. The you is always plural when you're reading the New Testament. You, like you people. But then sometimes he uses we and sometimes us. And that's the point of this whole thing I think we're going to dive into is like, there's the outsiders, you people, like you kind of speak with that authority, like you who are out there who haven't been included here before, you, you know, you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived. And then a few verses later, it's like all of us once lived this way. So now he's associating himself as a member of that group. We once were this way. And then it moves into this like sense of we and this joining language and that stood out to me right away. Um, so I would encourage people to, to notice that, especially when they're reading anything that's Pauline. But I don't know, Dallas, what do you think uh, right away at the beginning of this text? What, what stands out to you? One of the most interesting parts of this passage is right at the beginning when he says in verse 1, you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived. And he says the strange bit of following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. It's a very strange verse, and it doesn't make a lot of sense at first when you read it. Like, okay, well, what are what are these? What is the the ruler of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient? Um, that was the first thing that kind of stood out to me as being important. Like, what is Paul talking about? Yeah, I think first of all, what stands out to me is like sometimes as Christians, we we don't have a lot of uh, clarity in our speaking about what the kingdom of God is, we kind of think God is everywhere, you know, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. God is everywhere. God's kingdom is everywhere. Uh, you know, God is king of kings and God of gods, Lord of lords. And then that, that, like that theology, though, kind of gets weird when it's like, so what do we do about these teachings of like, like in one of the gospels, Jesus is like, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, <laughs> I'd be asking you the questions. Um, or my kingdom is here in part, but not yet in full. Um, I think one, something we do as Christians sometimes is say like the kingdom of God is just a reality in my heart. Um, like when I meditate and read my Bible, it's just this private thing. Or we think that the kingdom of God is this heavenly reality and we can't go like, like we can't enter it or taste it until we die. 
and then it's like a post-mortem reality, the kingdom. And so we have to really wrestle with that because here Paul's saying um, there is a ruler of the air, a spirit that is now at work. Like there is a sense that um, a king uh, reigns over a realm. It's a tongue twister, reigns over a realm. So so like we don't live in a king, like in a, in a monarchy. We, we have a democracy. But imagine there's a king. Like let's just imagine for a second that Canada was ruled by a king. And the king of Canada went down to the United States and starts like declaring new laws. He would be laughed at and the people there would be like, by what authority do you make this law? This isn't your realm. Like you're a king, you're a powerful king, but you're not in your realm your reign is not recognized here. But when you cross the border and go back to your kingdom, there you have authority. So I think a, an interesting question for believers is like, what is the realm of God? Where does God have authority and where does God not have authority? Which is weird to be like, well, what do you mean God not have authority? Here you have Paul talking about there is this realm. Uh, where there is a ruler and there are authorities and powers and principalities. It's kind of the end of Ephesians. Paul's going to go on about that for a while and the armor that we have to wear to be protected against it. So we do have to enter this text aware that God's kingdom is here in part, but not yet in full. And there are other kingdoms that we could belong to or be uh, shaped by. And so he's acknowledging there is a ruler of the power of the air and a spirit that is now at work among those. And he uses the word, the language of disobedience. Um, but yeah, so all that to say, he does, Paul is very a very brilliant writer, a rhetorician, I should say. And in Ephesians 6, he'll unpack this a bit. So it makes sense that he would plant some ideas at the beginning of the letter and then unpack them at the end. In Ephesians 6, 11 to 12, you have this, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities and these other kind of forces that are at play. And so, yeah, he, he, he's talking through a spiritual lens. But this, this text is also so packed full of political language that there's the rulers, like literally the governor, <laughs> the military leaders, the, the landowners, the emperor. And then there's also these spiritual rulers. And as um, Christians, we can't just imagine the kingdom of God as a reality in our heart or just a reality for like post-mortem because there is a matter of where we pledge our allegiance. Which ruler? Is it Jesus? Because you can't pledge allegiance to both Jesus and the ruler of the air or you can't pledge allegiance to Jesus and the nation of Canada or something, right? That's Christian nationalism, which is just not biblical. And so, yeah, I don't know. Other thoughts on that? It's interesting that you note the political aspect of it because my 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 evangelical roots when I first read this went like I think that a lot of people would read this and assume that the the powers and the uh, the powers of the air and the spirit that is now at work oh well that's that's the devil that's the devil who is influencing the um, all the sinners all the the evil people in this world like I almost think we we <laughs> a lot of um, Christians would kind of lean towards that and say like, oh, well, that's what's happening. So it's all those people over there, all the evil people, bad people being influenced by the devil um, who's keeping them in sin. And then there's the rest of us over here. So it's um, almost creating like a really big distinction yeah. in that sense, like between 
sinners than the rest of us, but not in like the best way either. Yeah. And I think it's so easy right now in our current like cultural climate where everything's so polarized to either over spiritualize an idea or over politicize an idea and say it's not spiritual at all. Yeah. It's just political. It's just the rich versus the poor and get this like kind of social reading or like Marxist reading of the text. But in the same way, we could just purely spiritualize it and say like, you know, I don't pledge allegiance to the to this ruler of the air because I pray and I read my Bible and I practice sexual purity and I don't I abstain from all these things. And it's just this very individualistic private thing. And it doesn't matter if I work for a company that's destroying the earth or enslaving people on the other side of the world. You know, (laughs) we need to walk both. We need to wrestle with the spiritual implications um, of our faith as well as the social um, implications. And the reason that's not been done, I would say, by most evangelicals is because it would be a lot of work because we... Readers in the West and the people who have done the majority of Bible translating and exegeting and studying in the last like 800 years have very much been the most privileged people in the world. And those are not going to be the people who practice a social reading of the text because the social implications are not great for those with all of the privilege. Well, it's incredibly challenging to face that from that perspective. Like if you are the, the privileged people that you have, I think you said this to me last week, like you have the most to lose if you're that person. And so of course you don't want to recognize that there is a, a, yes, there's a personal aspect, but there is a social, a corporate uh, reality to it that you have to be aware of. And that's ridiculously hard to face. Yeah. We can say, how often do you pray, read your Bible? Are you a good person? Are you kind? But we could also say, show me your bank statement. (laughs) Yeah. And, And so that, that's going to come into this in chapter two here in a minute. But one thing I wanted to point out is um, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is very, very similar to his letter to the Colossians. There's even some direct word for word correlations. And one verse that's relevant here is in um, Colossians chapter one, verse 13, which says uh, he has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Meaning you were once a citizen of this kingdom and now you're a citizen of another kingdom. So could I go fight in the military of the other kingdom? Could I try and vote and put my religious leader into the leadership role of that kingdom? Probably not because the idea is that you're being pulled from one kingdom and rescued and transferred. Your allegiance is transferred into another kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus. And so that's an important part of understanding what Paul's doing and understanding the Roman world where Paul's writing and who the powers of that land were is, is going to be really important for understanding this. Um, but right off the bat, I see what Paul's doing is he's talking to the outsider. So he's using this language of outsider versus insider. Um, you, you people. So I imagine Paul standing in the center of a social uh, group looking outside you people were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived following the course of this world following the ruler of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient all of us once lived among them so there's you us and them which is quite powerful in the passions of our flesh following the desires of flesh and senses and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else 
but God who is rich in mercy made us alive together in Christ. This idea that um, there's you and us and them. And what I what I think is profound is like I grew up in in the 90s and the early 2000s. I grew up in purity culture. I went to purity pledges usually in February of every year. I had a purity ring. It said love is patient engraved on the inside. And this idea of wrestling with sexual purity was like the number one discipleship. Like like that was the main part of being a Christian, especially a young one was wrestling with that. And so I think when we read Paul, we're like, oh yeah. Like I can be already picture a few awakeners being like, oh, yep, I know it. Like the shame, all of that stuff. And, and he does it here. Um, and then he does some other stuff that's really profound. But what I think is really important to know about Paul when he's talking here about you who followed the desires of your flesh and your senses and you were by nature children of wrath is that in this uh, time in history, the insider-outsider dynamic between Jews and Gentiles was very, very strong. There would be stereotypes. Like every insider group is going to have stereotypes about the outsiders. And then when you become an insider in one of those outsider groups, you'll find out that they have stereotypes the same way back. So for example, here's a, a perhaps dangerous example. You would have uh, vaccinators and anti-vaccinators. That's an in and out group right now. That's a hot one, yeah. right? I've sat, obviously, with within a circle of 100% pro, obviously get your vaccine, obviously like wear a mask and this is how we care for the vulnerable. I've sat in circles like that that speak in very hateful and derogatory ways about people who aren't vaccinated. And whether they're not vaccinated because of fear of vaccine injuries or because they think it's all a conspiracy and it's a mark of the beast or whatever, whatever, there's a way that that group talks about the other group when that other group isn't listening. And I also know from family members who are um, anti-vax, when they're together and they're talking about the, the vaxxed community and they're assuming that no one who's vaccinated is listening, they also talk with huge overgeneralizations and hate. We Both groups call each other sheeple. Both groups say they're like insider, outside a group. That's one. And that, that's one that's not necessarily based on gender, ethnicity, um, education, wealth, sexual orientation, whatnot. But that's a pretty new one too. Like, like that's a mainstream thing to talk about. Obviously, we have insider outsiders like conservatives, liberals, married people, unmarried people, rich people, poor people, educated people, uneducated people. And so I think what Paul's doing here is he's acknowledging just straight up, right off the bat, the stereotypes that the insiders, i.e. the Jewish believers, have about those Gentiles. And it was a common idea back then that the way Jewish believers would talk about Gentiles is to say, oh, they were just, they're just perverted. Those people will have sex with anything. They have no sense of control. They just live um, this like gratuitous life where you just have sex with whatever. And ugh, like this is how we think of the Gentiles. They are just truly uh, perverted people. Um, and he just says that right off the bat and that would have been a really common thing you see that in romans chapter one as well and so he's like oh yeah they were so horrible um and then he has this very subtle way of saying all of us were once outsiders which kind of calls the insiders into the the text here and i think would make any jewish believers in this congregation in ephesus immediately shut shift in their seats of like 
I don't know, it feels good when you're in the insider group and you guys are kind of talking negatively about those outsiders. And then you have a guest speaker come in and be like, oh, yeah, those outsiders are the worst. And then make a comment and be like, and all of us were once like them. What? The right off the bat, Paul's going to challenge our notions of insider, outsider. Um, no, it's interesting that you say how each group in a scenario of like there's one versus one, they each have stereotypes about the other. Um, like you're talking about the Jew and Gentile and how like Jews thought that Gentiles were just like the worst thing ever. And it just, it just triggered something. And I thought back to, I don't know where it was. I was trying to find it. But when uh, before Israel goes in to take control of Canaan, they're like, look at these like monsters that are in there. And how reality is they were probably just pretty normal people. But they had these such strong opinions about them and these um, stereotypes because they they had created this idea in, in their heads of like, you don't, because the Levitical law and everything was, you don't mess with them. You don't mix with Gentiles. You're supposed to be separate. You're supposed to be holy. Um, so you don't want to mix. And now fast forward into New Testament time, and they still think that about Gentiles. And Gentiles also have very strong opinions about Jews and their their rules and the way they do things. Yeah, I think I would add, like, like we know the stereotypes that the Jewish people would have about the Gentiles, but think about, like, the way the Romans would speak about the Christians, too, would be to say similar things, like, the Christians were atheists. Well, no, they believed in God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But they didn't worship any of the Roman gods or Greek gods. They didn't pledge, uh, like, divine allegiance to the emperor. And they would also accuse the Christians of being, like, have weird sexual stuff, too, because the Christians would have ceremony and teachings and feasts with both men and women which wasn't typical in that world often like women wouldn't be a part of it and then they would have these like love feasts they were called which was essentially communion but they would talk about it as if like yeah then we get together and eat the body of jesus and drink the blood of jesus that's weird and people would have very strong opinions about how weird and messed up and wrong and total debauched that was and then because they were being persecuted they would often be doing it in like private places late at night to avoid persecution. So now you have men and women together eating flesh and drinking blood in the middle of the night. You can only imagine the stereotypes. So there would be a stereotype and like hateful ways of speaking about one another um, from both sides. There isn't one group whose stereotype is more valid than the other. This is just what we do. We talk about each other in order to often just maintain our place in the in-group. And so... Paul knows that in this church in Ephesus. And I think it's really profound how he, the vision of this whole chapter and arguably this whole book and arguably the Christian imagination is that where there were two groups, insider and outsider, there will be a new group that is joined in the blood and body of Jesus. It's not that one group will assimilate to the other. The Gentiles can now go and become Jewish and give up all of their old cultural ways nor is it that we could have Gentile Christians and in another congregation down the street that meets at 4 p.m. instead of 10 a.m., the Jewish Christians, but that there's actually a whole new community that's created. It's not forced assimilation and nor is it forced segregation. It's the joining together into a new community. And we haven't, we haven't even begun that yet, I believe, as, as Christians in the West. We're still trying to force assimilation or segregate. And this joining is is just as sharp and necessary today, this, this teaching on joining, as it would have been 2,000 years ago. Yeah, that makes me think of 
from I'll go from my own personal experience. You're talking about like insiders and outsiders. Well, the church that I grew up in, I was the insider for sure. It was a church of a lot of people, but I knew that I was on the inside and man, did that feel good because I had a special role to play. I had the attention of um, people who were higher up in the church and then I'd have these other young adults or teenagers when, if I was in high school or whatever, who would come, you know, once or twice to an event and then they'd be like, they would just disappear and they'd say, well, I didn't feel welcome. I didn't feel like I was part of it. And I would sit there and be like, well, you just didn't try hard enough. You like, you weren't, this was on you, but it's, it's true. Like how much are we thinking about the other people? And then uh, we, we split off from that. And this is just another thought is that sometimes that somebody doesn't feel welcome or a group of people don't feel welcome and they don't feel like a part of the community. They don't feel like they're part of the inside. And then they split off and they start something new. And I'm not like criticizing church plants, but I'm just, I'm posing an interesting question of then are we separating like our unity by not reconciling or trying to solve our problems? What do you think? I don't know. I'm just thinking. Yeah, no. And like this also, like a lot of the times church plants are actually church splants, <laughs> meaning they split off from another bigger church from a conflict. And it was like a breakaway to do a new thing. And th th there's a way that like we do this as believers where it's way more work to work together and cooperate because I don't want to change anything. I want to invite you into what I have and what I'm doing and help you feel like you're fully welcome into my way and my community. That would be so easy for me. And if I was believed that my way was the highest and best way, it would be my great honor to help you participate in my way and to tell you that you are welcome to join my way. But as soon as it's we're both being invited into a new way and I might actually have to coexist and collaborate and dream and have intimacy with those people, nah, <laughs> like way easier. Just start our own thing, host our own thing. Um, and Paul's passionately against that. So if we imagine again, Paul is a Roman citizen, Paul's a Pharisee, Paul is a man, um, Paul's probably young in like the prime of life. And yet he does not try and disciple people into that privilege. He ends up being rejected by Romans and Pharisees and rejected by men who certainly would have had a problem with some of his teachings about women. Even some we'll find here in Ephesians chapter five. Um, he's not just discipling people to, he's not reaching down and lifting people up to his status. Like, let me give you a hand there, little buddy, and help you become like me. Paul's going down and then they're joining into a whole new identity. We've, we've yet to start that work here in this place. And it is both challenging and deeply profound. Willie Jennings, in the final conclusion of his big book, The Christian Imagination, writes that the, the Christian imagination is one of um, the enfolding of peoples and their ways of life inside one another through communion with the triune God. The goal is a social performance that announces a way of peace and love in a visibly boundary-transgressing kinship network. Yeah, in verse 6, Paul talks about, um, By grace you have been saved and raised 
You have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So just that idea of like, you're not being raised up into suburbia. You're not being raised up into some kind of like affluence or privilege. Um, you're probably not going to be raised up in any ways that the kingdom of this world recognizes as being noteworthy. <laughs> but you will have a citizenship and a place, a seat at the table in the heavenly places, which doesn't mean after you die, your soul gets to go, you know, taste paradise. But that right now, you already have a seat in the heavenly place. You who are a slave, you who are, uh, you have $30,000 credit card debt, you who have a criminal record, you who've been divorced twice, um, you have a seat in a place of great honor. And though the world may not recognize that honor, uh, we know that this is the place of, of true honor. And so this would be very, very good news for folks who have no honor, who have no seat at any table, who've never been welcomed home in any community. And it, it would be easily overlooked by folks who've always felt at home everywhere they went. No, I kind of, I said the same thing as you, or noticed the same thing as you did, that I think this news, this good news is for everyone. But I think you're right that the people who already possess a, a place of power or um, are superior societally than others probably wouldn't think much of this, that they would just kind of gloss over it, like you said. But for the people who had no voice or place in society and were treated inhumanely, to them, this would be a huge honor. And it's not, Paul isn't setting a, a requirement for it of like, oh, you have to do this, then you can have it. Just it, no, it's for everybody. And he he says that this grace is seen in God's gift to us, Jesus Christ, in verse eight, that no amount of sacrifice, no amount of hard labor, paid or unpaid, or the money or possessions could save you from from death or from from sin or the powers. It was only Jesus who could accomplish that. And that is for everybody. It's just probably a lot harder to accept for those who feel like they've earned something or that they can earn something. Yeah, it's uh, one way of talking about this reality that um, Dr. Willie Jennings, uh, the author of Christian Imagination and his Acts Commentary, um, talks about is the reality of diaspora. Like when you have an empire, you have probably indigenous people. And then you have people who are maybe immigrate there by choice, you know, settlers. Uh, and then you also have people who are there as part of the diaspora, meaning a forced migration and maybe a, a migration that was forced generations ago. Um, so you might have someone who originally comes here as a refugee and then they're granted citizenship or, or they've been here for a few generations. And the reality is they don't have a homeland to return to because of war or colonization. So they're here and they live here, but they're not at home here and they are displaced from their land, but they don't have an active imagination for returning to that land because it, it no longer exists in some way. And this kind of diaspora reality is very uh, important to understand about the Greco-Roman world. These, you know, you have Jewish Christians living or living in Ephesus. Why are they in Ephesus and not Jerusalem? Well, because the Jews were cast out of Jerusalem. Why do you have people from all around the world living in this place called Ephesus, often because of diaspora, colonialism? Um, and so, for example, here's a quote from Dr. Willie Jennings. This is in the beginning of his Acts commentary, and he talks about what diaspora means. 
And again, this is important because of this understanding of belonging and that Paul's imagining uh, two becoming one and outsiders be, be being joined and being called home. Um, we've titled this podcast series, Welcome Home, because feeling at home is kind of where this whole text lands. Um, so Willie Jennings says, diaspora life is life crowded with self-questioning and questions for God concerning the anger, hatred, and violence visited upon a people. We must never confuse voluntary migration with diaspora because diaspora is a geographic and social world not chosen and a psychic state inescapable. The peoples who inhabit diaspora live with animus and violence filling the air they breathe. They live always on the verge of being classified enemy, always in evaluation of their productivity to the empire, always having an acceptance on loan, ready to be taken away at the first sign of sedition. They live with fear as an ever-present partner in their lives, the fear of being turned into a them, a dangerous other, those people among us. They also remember loss of land and place, of life and hope, and even for some, of faith. Yet diaspora is also power, the power of a conviction to survive and the power of a confession to never yield to the forces that would destroy them. Diaspora is life by any means necessary. The condition of diaspora is often bound up with life under empire. And so he goes on eventually to say that faith, the faith in Jesus, is always caught between diaspora and empire. Always caught between those on the one side focused on survival and fixated on security, um, and on the other side, those intoxicated with the power and possibilities of empire and of building a world ordered by its financial, social, and political logics that claim to be the best possible way to bring stability and lasting peace. Wow. Yeah, and so the Holy Spirit, Jennings says, the work of the Spirit is to always confront our fear in order to free our faith to live in its true home, which is in God. Right? Like, who are the people in Bones who are here in diaspora, who, who don't have citizenship, who are seen as outsiders? Like, think about in the Exodus story, the Pharaoh doesn't mind the Hebrew slaves until he notices there's too many of them. And then he needs to assault. Then, then they become dangerous. So people who live in diaspora are like, always in that liminal space of like threat and are we welcome here? We're welcome here if there's only a few of us, but if there were to be too many, you know, Paul is challenging us um, to imagine, uh, uh, to reconfigure our social imagination that draws new lines of kinship and community, not lines along wealth or privilege or gender, but lines along the, <laughs> the blood of Jesus, the feast that we celebrate every Sunday, the communion table where we become one in the body and blood of Jesus. Anyway, uh, we could probably just set up camp in that Jennings quote for like five years and just sit in silence. But um, let's just talk about this for one second. Okay, Paul writes in verse 11. So then remember, at one time, you Gentiles um, by birth were called, and then he's like the slur, it's a derogatory slur, um, comes from the book of Jeremiah, you were called the uncircumcised um, by those who are called the circumcised or the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. 
Remember, you were at that time without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So look at that language. You were aliens, strangers. You had no hope. That is a vulnerable feeling. Me as a, a, a Canadian citizen who comes from like land-owning parents, um, I have no idea what it's like to feel like an alien and a stranger. I have no idea what it's like to have no hope. I'm a Canadian citizen, and because I have this passport that I own, I know that I will never die of starvation. Um, I will never probably experience exile or diaspora. And yet that is an ongoing reality for um, the majority world. And I think that's worth considering here is what, what Paul is suggesting. He's speaking directly to not those kids in youth group who aren't like living pure, right? Like not that he's not talking to them, but he's speaking to those people who don't feel at home, who are vulnerable and constantly um, longing for the security that citizenship would bring, but who do not have it. People who are invisible, people who don't get featured in our sermons and our worship sets. And he said, you were once far off, but now in Christ, you have been brought near. And they've been brought so near that the ones who are already inside are furious. The Jewish believers hate it. Not because the Jews only care about the law and legalism and the Christians care about love and grace. No, because insiders don't want the outsiders to join unless they assimilate. And so this is such a challenging message. I think I recently posted a question on Twitter asking like, I've always been a citizen of the land that I live in. And I asked, what's that like? I have no idea. Has anybody ever not been a citizen and applied for citizenship and found that to be very difficult. Um, I don't know, Dallas, are you a Canadian citizen? I am a Canadian citizen, yeah. And have you ever had a loved one be like applying for citizenship? This is going to be, I don't know exactly because um, Tatiana was not born here, but she moved here when she was two. So I don't know what that citizenship process was like for her. Um, and for her family, because she came with her parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles. And so I don't know what it was like for them. But I think some of them were actually born in Canada. So I don't I don't think I have anybody with like a, a story quite like that. At least not that I know of. On uh, when I posted this question to Twitter, um, my friend Lyndall commented and said, uh, it took five years and an absolute ton of paperwork, plus many appointments um, for her father to become a citizen. Um, first, he had to get permanent residency and then live here for a number of years, and then he could apply for citizenship. Um, she says that she was already a citizen of Canada because her mom was Canadian, but they still had to officialize the paperwork before they could come to live in Canada. Um, and then my friend John, who's also a professor at Ambrose, said when he lived in the UK and he was trying to become a citizen of the UK, the process was grueling and expensive, deliberately designed to create a hostile environment for all but the most economically advantageous future citizens. So we would say you can become a citizen of our country if you know you have some degrees and you're going to come here and immediately start making money for us. But if you're going to need money or any support from us, then you're going to be moved to the bottom of the list. Um, so con combine this preference for folks who are quote unquote productive with pervasive xenophobia and classism, it was very gross. Um, and Canada is not very different. Um, because they were not citizens when they lived there, they had to pay extra for healthcare and could not get a credit card. And then 
Um, my friend Justin said that when he moved to Canada, it took him so many years and so much money and stress. He had been married and started a family before becoming a citizen and at every waking moment felt anxiety that they could be denied and separate. He would be separated from his family. Um, and it was wild because he said before he had citizenship, family get-togethers, Thanksgivings, trips to the mountains, etc., things that are totally normal for those of us whose whole family already have citizenship, was tinted with anxiety because he thought, one day I will get kicked out of this place and I won't be able to get back in again. Citizen Citizenship meant I could stop worrying. I can't imagine that anxiety of not having a place to belong, that of not having that security, of always being seen as a threat and always being judged based on whether you were a burden on the system or a contributor and a benefactor, like a beneficent of the system. That's the way we, we arrange society. Who is productive and who is not? So imagine that's the insider-outsider group and Paul saying, those who are not, those who are on the outside, you have been talked about as if you are a burden. You have, your children have been locked in cages at our border. <laughs> you have been talked about very negatively. And yet, by the grace the riches and the kindness of Jesus Christ, you have a seat, not just in Canada or the U.S. or this nation you're trying to enter. You have a seat in the kingdom of God. It, it's very radical, especially the implications, I think, as Christians in how we treat um, people who are immigrants or, or have refugee status or who are not productive in the eyes of the empire. People with disabilities, people with trauma, uh, which renders uh, sometimes it difficult for them to work. Well, that, that even reminds me of what, what was it like two or three years ago when I think it was Trudeau who said that we were going to have a lot of Syrian refugee refugees coming into the country. Mm -hmm. And you even would notice some separation between groups of people who were like, yeah, let them in. Like we want to help and we want to welcome them and help them out. And there were others who were just like, no, why would we, we can't trust them. We can't let them in to our country. I remember hearing some people questioning that. So I can't, yeah, that, that's where my brain went. Yeah, yeah, with the refugee crisis for sure. I remember some churches were like, well, we should let Christian Syrians in, but not Muslim Syrians. Oh, wow. Right? And can you imagine that fear? Like, oh my goodness. Like, like, and, and can you imagine like, you know, being a, a Muslim parent who does get status and that vulnerability that that, requires to, to remain Muslim instead of assimilating for the sake of safety and security, there's something so profound there. Um, I think being a, a being given citizenship means safety, uh, means uh, access to healthcare, voting, um, being seen as a human being with personhood. You know, you can vote, you can all sorts of yeah. things, get access to housing. Um, and here he has that you were once aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, but now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And just to add to this for a second, if you think about who he's actually talking to, he might be talking to Roman citizens who like they're in everybody, like, like most people are insiders in one group or another. You, this is why sometimes, you know, yeah, yeah, they're insiders. But you're not an insider to my group that I'm in. You were far away. 
And the vision here is not that you would be brought inside the group that Paul was already a part of. Like, it's not that the, the Gentiles will become Jews. Um, it's very much this. I just think if I was like a Roman citizen that owned land and was like, who are you calling an outsider? You're the outsider. I don't want to be like you. You want to be like me. And Paul's like, nope, both of us could be joined together into one body. We could actually be Jesus. We could be the home of God together in one flesh. It just the, this play on insider-outsider is extremely profound. In verse 14, yeah, what, what does it say? Verse 14, for he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. So um, I was thinking of like progressives and traditionalists and how there's no, like Paul is saying, there's peace between you. There's no hostility. There should be no hostility between those two groups, but you are actually one united group. And so like you said, that insiders and outsiders, we kind of see each other as that and we separate each other. Bonhoeffer says in life together. I don't know what page, but he said, God did not make this person as I would have made them. He did not give them to me as a brother or sister for me to dominate and control, but in order that I might find above them, the creator. Now the other person in the freedom with which they were created becomes the occasion of joy. Whereas before they were only a nuisance and an affliction. God does not will that I should fashion the other person according to the image that seems good to me, that is, in my own image. Rather, in their very freedom from me, God made this person in his image. I can never know beforehand how God's image should appear in others. That image always manifests a completely new and unique form that comes solely from God's free and sovereign creation. To me, the sight may seem strange, even ungodly. But God creates every man and woman in the likeness of his son, the crucified. After all, even that image certainly looked strange and ungodly to me before I grasped it. Wow. Well, that's so different. Instead of like, I'm going to meet you and I'm going to teach you how to become like me and I'm going to give you Jesus. It's like, I'm going to look for Jesus that's already in you and meet Jesus there, which means I'm the one that has to cross over, not you. Yeah. It's wild. So some churches um, in, in our denomination right now, I'm going for it, really wrestling with like who's allowed to be a member of a church or not, like church membership. And church membership is kind of wild because like biblically, if you've been baptized, you're a priest. Yeah. <laughs> biblically, if you've been baptized, you know, like you're participating in the communion table, you are being joined in the body and blood of Jesus. Um, but we, we um, have anxiety around who's allowed to be a member and who's not. And it's kind of been my stance that like if you – want to know more about Jesus and and you want to be a part of Jesus and like follow Jesus and perform the Jesus story in this neighborhood, then you're already a member of the body of Jesus, whether I agree or not. You're already a member and whether I acknowledge that or not, in God's eyes, you're a member. But we are so quick as a polarized culture right now to be like, yeah, but no, sorry, you have to have this sexual orientation or you have to have this education or like sign off on these um, belief statements I'm like, no, I think if this person um, has the fruits of the spirit and like a deep longing um, to be a part of the body of Jesus, they're already in. 
<laughs> vote or no vote. This narrative around membership, I think Paul would have words for us in Ephesians 2, um, that it's not our job as churches to draw lines, i.e. make dividing walls between who's in and who's out, who gets to be a member and who doesn't. It's our job to actually break down those dividing walls. That is the hostility between us. Um, that's the work of Jesus in our midst. It's not personal righteousness or personal piety as much as it is the forming of a new community in the body and blood of Jesus, where we all transgress social norms. We all break uh, kinship bonds to form a new community. And I'm, I'm really looking, I, I want to be a part of a church that embraces that mission. In Ephesians 5, uh, chapter 2, verse 15, I really love, as an Old Testament scholar, um, this language he uses in verse 15. He says, he has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. And the Greek word is arene, which is also um, in Hebrew the word shalom. So when I see the two becoming one flesh, and I see the word shalom, I'm immediately brought back to the Garden of Eden in that the first human, the, the human that was made from soil, the Adam, um, was one flesh, although the word for uh, life is the word for Eve. So there's like in the Hebrew, it's my favorite text because you have like God breathes the spirit of life into the human that was made out of dirt. So he takes the soil, breathes the spirit of life, the word is Eve, into the human, and then realizes the human's alone, and it's a problem. And so he splits the human into two. And then the two humans kind of wake up from the surgery and look at each other, and they're like, whoa, bone on my bone, flesh on my flesh. This is wild. Let's spend the rest of our life trying to become one again. And we kind of just cheapen that to be like, yeah, that's about married people. Um, that's about Adams and Eves in the world and, and marriage. It's like, no, that's about humanity. The, very quickly after that split from one into two, they're hiding from each other in because of shame. They're wearing clothing. And when they put that clothing on to hide and protect themselves from the other, that's hostility. That's division. And then their children are killing each other. Their children's children are building towers, uh, enslaving each other. This hostility. So you have Christ is back in the Garden of Eden. But instead of splitting one human into two, there's a joining of the two back into one body and one flesh. And so the vision is to be back in Eden in paradise where there's shalom, i.e. Sabbath rest and, and harmony. Um, you have one body, one. And that body is Christ at the head and the community of all living things, all of our relations as the body. It, it's a, it's a, I don't know, do you see that Garden of Eden language there? I mean, yeah, I didn't pick up on some of those details like you came up with because that's the first time I've heard some of that. But I did notice like the the peace and the some of the Old Testament imagery of a new humanity, um, but not to the extent that you did know. Well, yeah, and then just this idea of like what we know about Adam is he was formed from the dirt and then God breathed his spirit into the dirt, which then animated it to become alive. Mm -hmm. So the dirt wasn't alive in and of itself. The spirit of God had to animate it and make this dirt come alive. And then, oh, this is the Adam. And then the Adam gets split into two, male and female. The church, the day of Pentecost, is all of these different diaspora people joined together. And then what happens? The spirit of God is breathed into them and they come alive. And now they're one body. Wow. And that's the church. 
the, the same spirit that was breathed to the nostril of the, the dirtling Adam. We, the church, are Adam, and the Holy Spirit is Eve, the Azer Canido, the suitable helper. And the mission we have as a church that is one body, animated and in, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is to care for this garden <laughs> and be priests in the home of God. Where does God live in the Bible? In the Garden of Eden. That's God's home. And when the humans uh, sin and get exiled from the garden, God follows them east and builds a home, a Garden of Eden, right in the wilderness. That's what the tabernacle is. Jesus Christ, it says in John chapter 1, uh, was God, became flesh, and tabernacled among them. Jesus Christ is at the human being uh, whose body is the home of God. And then Jesus breathes his spirit on the church and says, as the Father sent me, so now I'm sending you. And the church now is the body of Jesus, the home of God. We are Adam. And so can you imagine trying to have votes on who's allowed to be a member and who's not, or plant a church in certain neighborhoods and get freaked out when certain shady looking folks come into your church? It's like we have, we're still doing the empire work. We're still doing segregation and forced assimilation. We, we haven't even started to join the two bodies back into one flesh. That's what we do every Sunday when we take communion. This is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ poured out for you. And now we're all standing together, the blood of Christ in me and the body of Christ in you. And look, we're being stitched together. The same blood pumping through me is pumping through you. We are Jesus. We are the home of God. And so before we wrap this episode up, look at the very last verse of this chapter. Paul says, well, let me just go verse 19, three verses. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. We've moved from body language, flesh and blood, to building language, cornerstone, foundation. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The first temple in scripture is the Garden of Eden. And in the last verse, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. You are, you plural, you, the people who are joined by the blood and body of Jesus, are the home of God in this world. Are we hiding from each other because of shame, or are we bound together in one body? The same blood that flows through me flows through you. We are the body of Jesus, the home of God, the incarnate God, <laughs> the incarnation, the God in the flesh is the people who gather at that communion table. So we need to reconfigure our social imagination. The very first verse in the next chapter, he says, this is why I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ, for the sake of you, Gentiles. <laughs>